Good morning, Ville Church. Uh, I'd like to start off by talking about the benefit of the doubt. So I want you to imagine somebody comes to me to complain about you. What would you like me to say to them? Let me give you a couple options. Here's, here's one option. Would you prefer I say something like this? Honestly, they'll never listen to you because they're never wrong. Anybody who's like, please, Pastor Michael, this is how I'd like to, for you to no. know. Or would you rather me say, how about you talk to them? I think they're going to respond well. Like all of you in the room, I think would prefer the latter. Although some of you, you might be actually saying, yeah, but the former is probably more true. So, um, okay, would you prefer, honestly, based on what I know of her, she definitely meant to offend you. <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> or... How about this one? I'm pretty sure that's not what she meant. Like, you'd probably prefer the latter. Here, here's another one. Would you prefer, honestly, just stay away from him? He will never change. Or would you prefer, I bet he probably had a hard day, maybe week, maybe month, maybe decade for all I know. Why don't you go talk to him and, and give him the benefit of the doubt? How many of you would prefer that I give you the benefit of the doubt, right? The benefit of the doubt is something that all of us want. I would even say, I think we require from those that love us and know us. But it's also something that we usually only give to those that we believe have earned it. And so I will probably be slow to give you the benefit of the dart, of the dart, no, the heart, if as I've gotten to know your heart, then I'm probably going to be slow if you've maybe proven yourself to be untrustworthy or angry on a regular basis. Or, but there's even a part of me, if I'm being honest with you, like I feel like for me to give you the benefit of the doubt, there's a part of me that wants you to have earned it. And when you are in a relationship with somebody and you have not given them the benefit of the doubt, you cannot have a healthy relationship in that context. To give someone the benefit of the doubt requires trust in their character. And, and as you learn God's heart, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that he is trustworthy. I want you to know that when God does things that you do not understand, that he is trustworthy. And what I want, I want the net result of this message would be that you would love him and trust him more. When you see what Jesus does in John chapter 11, I want you to walk away with a greater confidence that I may not have a clue what God is up to, but I can trust his heart, that I can give him the benefit of the doubt because he's not just sovereign and strong, although he is, he is good and loving and compassionate. So we're going to explore this together in uh, John chapter 11. If you'd open up your Bibles there with me. Uh, John 11 is the resurrection story of Lazarus. This is one of Jesus's closest friends. It is a powerful story about Jesus's strength. It's a powerful story about Jesus's deity, his power to raise people from the dead, and so much more. There's a lot happening here. It foreshadows his own death and resurrection. And it's also a story that the people who saw this as a result of being around the resurrection of Lazarus, they personally trusted in Jesus as their savior. But it's also a story that shows the heart of God in a way that I think few other gospel stories do. So at the beginning of John 11, let me just, let me just break down what happens. 
Lazarus, his dear beloved friend, is sick and he dies. Jesus could have stopped it and he didn't. Jesus could have arrived earlier to prevent him from dying and he didn't. Jesus could have prevented everyone's grief, but he didn't. Jesus also could have raised Lazarus from the dead with a word from across the country, but he didn't. And and Jesus' power to raise someone from the dead, it is the tip of the iceberg of the power of God. And, And so here's my question. What possible reason could Jesus, God in the flesh, have for such an apparently heartless decision? And I think if I were to ask you, if your brother or your sister were about to die and Jesus could stop it and heal it and arrive and he chose not to, would you be frustrated with him if you were maybe Mary and Martha, the, brother, or the sisters of Lazarus? Probably. But if you trusted God's heart, you wouldn't be thrilled with the decision, but you would give him the benefit of the doubt, wouldn't you? You would believe in your heart that God allows, ordains, or permits all things for his good. I am confident that when I can see this from his perspective and he explains it to me, I am going to give him more glory. But if you have even an ounce of doubt in your heart to the trustworthiness of God, you are going to be frustrated. You will begin to pull away from him and his word and his people as life gets more and more challenging the older we get. All right, look at John chapter 11, verse three. It says this, so the sisters, that's Mary and Martha, they sent to him Jesus saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. Now verses three and four, let's set some context here. What do we know just from verse three, looking at this? These are the sisters of Lazarus and these are two of Jesus's most beloved friends. In fact, this trio of siblings is near and dear to the heart of Jesus. These sisters knew that Lazarus' illness was bad enough that he wasn't going to get better and they needed Jesus to come over. Now, we also know they sent messengers to Jesus. So Jesus is fairly far away. And so they believe that Jesus actually does have the power to heal Lazarus and to do something about this. Let's look at verse four. When Jesus heard it, the messengers, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All right, what else do we learn here about the context of this situation in verse four? Number one, Jesus speaks as if he has zero doubt about Lazarus's fate. Does does Jesus believe Lazarus is going to die? Well, it sounds like he says, ah, it's not gonna lead to death. But you guys know the end of the story, don't you? Does Lazarus die? Certainly does. Second, it's, it's as if Jesus was waiting for the news. I guess this is a perk of omniscience. You kind of know everything. And so when this came to him, he didn't seem to be surprised. He seemed to be waiting for this. We also learned that Jesus is apparently up to something bigger than just this thing. We also learned that whatever this thing is, people are going to see it and they are going to give God glory for whatever happens. Now, if you were to ask the disciples, what, are you gonna, what do you think Jesus was going to do? None of them had a category for the series of events that were going to unfold. We get to verse five and here's what John does. John takes one verse to let you, his readers, know something really important. Here's what verse five says. 
He says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Most of you do not read Koine, first century biblical Greek. This is actually one of these chapters where what I want to help you do is understand some linguistic nuances because on the surface, it looks like something is happening, but to these original readers, there are things happening in the words that John is using that are so helpful and so striking. In verse five, we see the first word that we need to bring clarity to, and it's the word love. Look back with me at verse three. It's the first time love came up. Came up. It says this, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you Love is ill. And here's what's happening. The messengers are bringing this news to Jesus and they use the Greek word phileo for love, which is a friendship love. It's an affectionate love. It's not the deepest kind of love, but it's, hey, your buddy, he's sick. You may want to show up. But when we get to verse five, John himself wants every single one of you to know that kind of love does not cut it. That does not adequately explain the kind of love that Jesus has in his heart for Lazarus. And so he says to him, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And this is the Greek word for agape. This is covenantal, lifelong, sacrificial, committed love. This is the kind of love that is what you would have for a spouse a son or a daughter, or you take all the friends you've ever had and like there's maybe three, four, or five throughout the totality of your life that are agape love. These are the closest, most loyal, I will fight for you to the death kind of relationships. And what John wants you to know, whatever is about to happen, you have to understand this foundation. Jesus doesn't just like love him, like God loves the whole world, we throw the world. Jesus loves this man with a committed, covenantal, sacrificial, deeply emotional love. And you're gonna need to know that before you see what happens next. Look at verse six. Now, here's what I think verse six should say. Now, you should be glad that I'm not God and I did not write scripture, but based on what I just heard, I think it should say this. Therefore, Jesus left immediately to see Lazarus. And upon arrival, Jesus laid hands on Lazarus, and he was well. And there was much rejoicing from all, and many believed. That's what I think it should say. It doesn't say that. Because Jesus loved Lazarus with an agape love, here's what it says. Therefore, so, when he, Jesus, heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Are you beginning to catch the implications for you personally? John doesn't want you just to meet a feel-good Jesus. John is laying a framework for how God works with his people. Jesus has everything he needs to go make this situation right, right now. And instead, Jesus dilly-dallies for two days. All I know is if I go to God in my most desperate moment and say, please show up. I need you now. And if God says, eh, I'm gonna ignore you for two days and kind of do my own thing for a couple of days, I'll get back to you in two days. I'd be frustrated. If God sees your pain, and he chooses not to fix it. Here's what John wants you to know. It is always out of agape love for you. And for you to believe that requires you to give God 
the benefit of the doubt, to trust his heart. I'll be honest, I watch a lot of things happen and I don't get it. I find myself thinking, and don't strike me down with lightning, Lord, but if I were God, I think I would have intervened sooner. If I were, if I were Jesus, I would have, the second coming would have been a long time ago, I'm gonna be honest. But what John, what John needs to set a foundation for everybody reading this is if God sees your pain and he chooses not to fix it, it's always, always out of agape love for you. And in the moment, it feels impossible to be happy about that. But I think one of the things we learn is if you just give him enough time, he always exceeds our expectations. In light of this, let's go to verse 17. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. What does this mean? Lazarus isn't just dead based on their burial practices. He is rotten, and there are insects beginning to crawl through his body. There's also, and we don't actually know how much this actually intersects with John's writing or if it was in his head, but there was rabbinic teaching at the time that taught, this is not true, by the way, okay? So I want to make sure we're really clear. This is rabbinic teaching, not biblical teaching, that the soul would hover around a body for three days, but on the fourth day, it was gone. Like, there's nothing you could do. And so there are some commentaries that think that the fourth day is really important, not just to show you the extent of the rot of the body, but also to show you that in Jewish tradition, like, the hope for resurrection or the hope that he's still alive is completely gone. There is no chance. We get to verse 18, and it says this, Bethany, not a person, by the way. This is a city. This is where Martha and Mary Lazarus live. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Now, there are a lot of factors that are going to converge here, and I want you to pay attention here. Why does it matter, if you've been tracking with us in John, that Bethany is two miles away from Jerusalem? Well, who's in Jerusalem? The, quote, Jews. Now, obviously, they're all Jews and, and the Romans, but like, there's a group of people that John writes about called, quote, the Jews. This is a group of religious leaders who hate Jesus and are intent on murdering him. They are hunting him down. How long does it take you to walk two miles? If you're in semi-good shape, 30 to 40 minutes. If not, maybe two hours at the max. They are a short walk away from where they are thinking Jesus is going to be. Now, this is going to become really, really important, but this is why Jesus is going to do what happens next. But then it says in verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Okay, why are, quote, the Jews showing up at this insignificant family's house? Like, there are people who die every day in Israel. Why are, quote, the Jews, the religious leaders, coming to Martha and Mary, two miles away, to console them and their grief. I'm going to give you two reasons. One, which is maybe a little bit interesting, one of the traditions that they had was they would actually hire professional mourners. I think this is super weird. People still do this in the world today. But they hire people to show up at a funeral or in the grieving process to wail and to mourn for a certain period of time. And so they come in and they cry these really big tears and there are these moans and it's a loud affair and, and, and in case they didn't have enough people grieving, they pay people to come in and do this. And these people would probably come from Jerusalem. 
Now, the second reason that these people could be here, and I think it's probably a combination of both, is that the Jews wanted him dead. They knew that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were friends, and they're thinking, certainly Jesus is going to show up for the funeral of his best friend. You put them both together, Martha and Mary hired mourners, and which mourners do you think the Jews picked out? They probably picked out the ones who could go find him and arrest him and ultimately end his life. And you're, you're going to find that Jesus is not thrilled at all that this group of people are here at his, one of his best friend's funerals. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained in the house. Why did, why did Martha leave? She left because Jesus couldn't come into the city because who's in the city? The Jews. And why did Mary stay behind? To distract the Jews. So she goes out and she meets him outside of the city. And here's what it says. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can we just empathize with Martha for a moment? She has seen Jesus do incredible miracles. She knows that Jesus could have saved him. She knows that Jesus waited. She knew where he was. She sent messengers. She knows how long it takes the messengers to get there and to get back and for Jesus to come back. And that guy took way too long. She knows Jesus was aware. Here's Martha's problem. And I think this is actually the problem many of us have throughout our life. She has zero idea why Jesus would allow her to experience such grief when he could have stopped it. Like we, we have to admit, we have to call it what it is. Jesus could have stopped this scenario from happening. It does not matter what thing you've gone through. God could have stopped anything at any moment, at any time that anything has ever happened to you. We have to admit that. If we're going to believe that God is the all-powerful, majestic, glorious God of this universe, we cannot for a moment act like that fact doesn't exist. And I want to come back. If you, if you give God the benefit of the doubt, if you trust his heart, you won't wag your finger at him which is why the benefit of the doubt with God is just so essential. She knows he could have fixed it, she, and she probably has zero categories. And this is the moment I would expect Jesus would be like, guess what's going to happen? It's all going to be good. It's going to be fine. He says nothing. Verse 28 communicates that she expresses her frustration. She leaves and says this. When she said this, she went in and called her sister Mary, saying in private. Why in private? Because the Jews are listening. The teacher's here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Again, does Jesus come into the city? No, she goes out to meet him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. But when the Jews, like whenever you see this in John, you kind of have to go, the Jews, like some ominous noise here. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly they to go out and go out, they followed her. Supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. There, there, Mary. Is Jesus coming by chance? Are you okay? Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's seen Jesus do incredible things. She knows Jesus could have saved him. She knows Jesus waited. 
But Mary, just like Martha, she has zero idea, zero idea why Jesus would allow her to experience such grief when he could have stopped it. Let's just take a moment and regroup. I wrote down a list of about 100 things in this moment I know that Jesus knows or is thinking. I boiled it down to 10. You're welcome. Here we go. He knew this was going to happen. He knew, that, he knew what he would find when he got to the house. He knew they would be weeping. He knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew their mourning would turn into rejoicing. He knew many would believe after they witnessed his power. He knew this would be a landmark moment for the rest of these people's lives. He knew when these people grew older, they would tell this story to their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. He knew this would go into scripture and billions would hear the story of his power. He knew Lazarus' name would go down in infamy as an illustration of the power and the deity of Jesus. And with all of this certain knowledge, what emotion do you think Jesus would be experiencing? I, I would guess some level of confidence. Guys, just wait, just wait. Like, if you ever got a Christmas present that you really love and you're excited to give to somebody and you're like, I got your present. What is it? I can't tell you. Guess what? I'll give you hints. Lots of hints, right? Like if I were Jesus, I would be, I could not hold this in. I would want to just look at them and say, it's going to be fine. Trust me. I got this under control. He's silent. He's silent. In verse 33, there's another turn of events. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. If I were to ask everyone in this room and take a poll, what do you think deeply moved and greatly troubled means? Almost everybody would say something like this. He's really sad. He's overwhelmed with grief. But this is another point where the Greek text actually uses very different words. And I want to tell you what these words mean because it's powerful. Jesus is experiencing the emotion of intense fury and anger. Deeply moved literally means to snort like a horse. One commentary said this about it. Apart from its use here, it appears only three other times in the New Testament where it is translated sternly warned or scolding. Thus, it includes the, includes the connotations of anger, outrage, or indignation. Now let's look at the word greatly troubled. This means disturbed or upset, and when used as a verb, it's translated like this, to start a riot and to cause great distress. When Jesus saw Mary and Martha weeping, and the Jews who had come with her weeping, Whatever this thing was, the result of it was anger. Now, Mary and Martha, this is real weeping. And the word that, that, that John's using is right for the Jews. But there's this fake weeping. Oh, we're so sad. Oh, tears. They would, like actors, manufacture tears. And he is looking at their duplicity and their agenda. And they're exploiting the moment of one of his best friend's death. And he is angry. And oftentimes we are the most angry at those who threaten the ones we love. Amen? Amen. Verse 34 says, Jesus' response to watching this, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
He's now going to the tomb. The crowds are following him. The Jews are following them. The family's following him. And this is loud. <laughs> there's genuine weeping with Mary and Martha and there's fake weeping with the mourners. What happens next, I think, is a little surprising. And this, again, is going to be a moment where you need to know the Greek or read a commentary or a good study Bible, and it's going to cue you into what happens. You all know the verse, two words, Jesus wept. What's interesting is that when everybody else was weeping, there was a different word used for weeping. The word was klia, which means to lament to wail, to weep with deep emotion. These are tears shed from a ruptured heart in agony over unrequited grief. These are also the same kinds of tears, the same kinds of noises made for those who are ritual mourners. Same word. That's what Mary, Martha, and the Jews are doing. But then John changes his language. He actually uses a completely different word for Jesus wept. He uses the word dacruo, and this is what it means to simply shed a tear. Why? Mary and Martha, and then all the mourners, they're grieving in a way as if people who have no hope. And Jesus' tear, it actually represents so much. It represents his genuine compassion to Mary and Martha. Death is ugly and disgusting anywhere you find it. It represents probably his sorrow and anger at these Jews who have just no idea what they're doing, hijacking this moment, exploiting this with their fake tears. But it also represents this confidence. He knows exactly what's going to happen next. From the time of Jesus wept to what he does next, we're talking like probably less than a minute. Look at verse 36. The Jews said then, this is where their heart is really revealed. See how he loved him? It's interesting they use the word phileo here. They don't even understand the kind of love that Jesus has for Lazarus. And how could the world? Like the world sees how Jesus loves you and how good he is to you and how faithful he is to you. And then they see the fact that sometimes he lets his own people go through really difficult times and doesn't intervene. They, they, they don't understand it. The best idea that they could even have is the, the best Jesus has for him is, is phileo. And then they just mock him. And how irritated would you be, by the way, if at your friend's funeral, this is what people are saying. The people you hired, by the way. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept him from dying? Do you remember a couple chapters ago, Jesus identified who the Jews' real father was? It wasn't God the Father. The real father was who? Satan. And how striking is it in this moment, these men, these professional mourners, these Jews coming here with duplicitous motives are seeking to make Mary and Martha doubt the goodness and the love of Jesus for them. They show up at just the right time and just the right moment. He doesn't even phileo you. If he filleted you, he wouldn't even let his friends go through this. And isn't it just like the evil one in your lowest moments and your greatest grief to plant lies from the evil one to push you personally away from God and to doubt his agape heart of love for you? Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, snorting like a horse, angry, came to the tomb. 
Then Jesus deeply moved again. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. I'm done with the games. I'm done with your criticism. I'm done with you, evil one, building a wedge between these best friends of mine, these people whom I love with an agape love, and I'm gonna show you, and this is gonna be a landmark moment for the rest of your life. May you never, ever doubt that whatever, ever you go through, I love you. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, um, Lord, hey, by the time, uh, by this time, it's four days in, there's gonna be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I appreciate that Jesus prays publicly in a way where he's recognizing people are listening. And he says, I know that you always hear me, but I say this on account of all the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with the cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This would be a moment they would never forget. And I'm telling you from this moment on, no matter what Mary and Martha and Lazarus experience, they were gonna give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. Two so what's number one. Never let the coldness of life dull you to the compassion and to the love of God for you, Christian. It is vital for John that anybody who reads this book, that they understand the heart of Jesus for his people. It's not phileo love. That's a piece of it. It's deeper and more beautiful and more significant. John wants you from the beginning to the end of this book to know that God loves you with a deep, emotional, covenantal, sacrificial, I would die for you love. And anybody who tries to convince you of anything less than that is from the evil one not telling you the truth. Whatever voice you have in your head that says, God, if you loved me, you would fill in the blank. It is not from God. It is not from the Holy Spirit. God loves you. John is so passionate about this. He even calls himself, you know the nickname he has? The one whom Jesus loved. He writes his own book, and every time his character shows up, he calls him the one whom Jesus loved. There was something about Jesus that when these disciples, particularly John, wants you to get a hold of, that he is the personification of love. Like There are loving people in the world, but none of them even came close to Jesus. And, and I think in John's mind, he's like, listen, when you die and you see him face to face, you're going to understand love in a way you have never understood it before. And it's not some like charisma love or fake love or just simply phileo love. It is the love of somebody who would literally die for you, who loves you forever with a covenantal love, despite you and any of the ridiculous things that you might do in this world. It is a love deeper than any other, other human has ever given. And you're gonna get it. And John wants you to grasp this because he walked with Jesus and he saw him. So what, number two, Jesus deserves the benefit of the doubt. I think it's a fair question. Why would Jesus wait to save my child, heal me, bring my husband or my wife to repentance, expose the sin of this person, 
enact justice, come a second time. You can fill in the blank with whatever you want. Why would Jesus wait to? And John 11 gives us two reasons. Number one, the reason he's waiting is that you might glorify God. Look back at verse four. We read this, but I want you to see this again. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. And here's what he meant. Like, like, this is not like his permanent death. Like, just wait, I'm gonna do something great. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If God doesn't show up on your timetable, it is so that through you and whatever he does, he gets more glory. If God thought he would get more glory by showing up sooner, he'd show up sooner. And when you understand that it is really important for God to get as much glory as he can, that he will sometimes wait. And when he does show up and when he does intervene, you will give him glory and you will step back and say, gosh, you're so smart. Why didn't I give you the benefit of the doubt to begin with? Why would Jesus wait? Here's the second reason. That you might believe. Look at verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. But wait a minute, you just told him he wasn't gonna die. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. So that you may believe. Not only does God, when he resolves this issue, want you to give him glory and credit, but in the tension and in the weight and then in the resolution, he wants to deepen your faith and your confidence in him. Every single trial that you go through is building the muscle of faith, is building a confidence in his heart and his character, and every single one of them are equipping you for the next thing that's gonna happen. Don't get me wrong, life in Christ is so much better than life without Christ, but life in a sinful world gets progressively harder and harder, amen? And so I, I love being a Christian. I'm filled with joy, but at the same time, I'm watching people I love get sick and die and hurt, and the list goes on and on. And what I need to know is that God is good. He is up to something. When he resolves this thing, I'm gonna say, you're a genius, and I can trust his heart, and I am believing and trusting and having more confidence in him, in him with every single trial that comes throughout my life. Bill Church, I think one of the most beautiful things you can do is give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. As you weep, as you grieve, as you struggle through the realities of this life, trust me, he will resolve this in one way or another and you will say, I give you glory and I'm sorry I ever for a moment doubted you. And if you are not a believer, do you know why John wrote this book? John wrote this book so that non-Christians would read it and they would believe in Jesus Christ. John wrote this book so that people could hear about Jesus and the miracles that he did and the kinds of things he said and they would see God in the flesh and they would finally get to the culmination of the book. I know you don't know what happens at the end of John. Let me tell you, he dies and he raises from the dead. And it wasn't just Lazarus. Lazarus was raised and then he died and then on the last day, Lazarus is gonna be raised again. Jesus died and he was raised once and for all and forever, an eternal body. And we are given these things. This is beautiful reminder. If you believe in Jesus, death has no power over you. Death is not the end. Death is, uh, it's a transition. And there is eternal life and it is found in Jesus Christ. And so today, maybe you are here and you've never trusted in Jesus. And I just wanna offer you one of the greatest gifts I could ever give you, which is eternal life for those who believe in Jesus. And let me just ask you, do you believe that he's God and that he died for your sins? Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? You can ask God to save you and forgive you of your sins anytime. There is no special mantra I can give you. If you were to tell God, I love you, I'm a sinner, I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again from the dead, anybody 
who ask God for forgiveness through faith in the resurrection and death and resurrection of Jesus will be saved, period. All your sins will be forgiven. And here's what I love. He'll save you knowing all the dumb things you're gonna do from that point forward to the day you're dead. He's like, I already know all the ways you're gonna screw up and I still forgive you and I still love you and I am gonna covenant myself to you. And then here's what you get, the agape, covenantal, committed, sacrificial love of God in Christ toward you forever and nothing can undo it. And if that's a decision that you have never made, I wanna just encourage you, we're gonna pray in a moment, but ask God to forgive you your sins. And then if you decide to trust in Christ today, tell somebody you came with so that, that we can help you take a next step in your relationship with God. What a delight it is to help you grow in your relationship with the only one true and eternal God through faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters to you and my own heart before you. And, and we want to have unshakable confidence in your character and your heart because you deserve it. As we look at, back through history um, over and over again, all the things that didn't make sense begin to make sense in retrospect. But right now, God, many of us are kind of in the middle of our own stories and we have zero idea how you are gonna pan this thing out. But Lord, if we've learned one thing in our own personal lives and throughout history, you are good and you are faithful. Lord, one day we are going to say, oh, you're so smart. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. But Lord, may we give you that benefit of the doubt now. May we just have this confidence in your heart and your goodness. And thank you for these stories that remind us again that maybe your biggest objective isn't that we feel good all the time, but that we might glorify you and have unshakable confidence in your heart. I'm so thankful for stories like this that remind us that sometimes we pray to you, we, we beg you for help and you don't show up in our time frame, but the time frame you do show up in and the way you come through is always to give you the most amount of glory and to deepen our faith and confidence in you. So Lord, thank you for that and we love you for it. And, and Lord, if there's anybody in this room who has never trusted in Christ, I pray God that you would even just give them the words in this time to confess their sins to you and to, to call on the name of Jesus. Thank you that salvation is not for people who are good enough, but for people who ask for forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you, and uh, Lord, as we even now are about to worship you, would you well up inside of us gratitude for your goodness and your strength. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, I want to invite you to stand, and before we sing, I want to introduce a song. It's Christ is Risen. And I was imagining, I left this whole section out of my sermon. I decided to put it in right now at this point of the service, but... Imagining when Jesus walked up to the tomb, everything this tomb represented to Jesus. I imagine that you go back to the Garden of Eden where Jesus was actually in the Garden of Eden walking the cool of the day and he says, Adam, where are you? And he says, I was afraid and so I hid. I imagine the day he had to curse Adam and Eve and all of creation and kick them out. I imagine sin corrupting all of the things that he had had made and his heart is broken. The tomb represents um, not just Lazarus who had died because of his sin, but all of the murder and death and war all throughout history. Jesus is familiar with every single person, every young person who died, every old person who died. Imagine that the tomb represents not just this, but also what, what he's gonna be buried in in just a few short months. He's gonna be executed by these very Jews and he's mad at him, but he also knows that he's gonna, at Passover, give over his body to be killed and he's gonna be put into a tomb. And, and I imagine this represents also this reality that he knows the father is gonna raise him from the dead. 
And he's going to be the first fruits of many to come. And, and even as he's grieved over history and what has been lost, he's looking to what he's going to redeem and rebuild. And when we see the resurrection of Jesus, our hearts are designed to look forward to say, one day that's going to be our resurrection too, if we're in Jesus Christ. And so as we sing Christ is risen, as we remember this fact of the historical, real resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are reminded again that one day our resurrection is coming too. And there will be a world where we have bodies without sin. Amen. The world will be without sin. There will be no more dictators and deceptive rulers or high taxes or anything else. But we will have one leader, one king. His name is Jesus. And so this is a song that just casts our hearts forward to that moment. Let's worship our Lord together.